is it worth paying $450? If you're going to use your free night award in the Maldives or someplace where a hotel is more than $450 a night, go for it. it. It makes total sense. I just don't see that. I actually might add a Hilton surpass to my wallet just because I, I need more Hilton points right now. And I feel like that's a good option. Hey there, points people. You just heard a clip from Ariana Argandawal from Points Chaser. Ariana is a rewards travel expert and founder of Point Chaser, an award-winning points and miles blog. She's been writing about all things points and miles for over a decade. In addition to her blog, she has served as editor for travel and personal finance publications such as Flyer Talk, Nerd Wallet, The Points Guy, and USA Today. Her work has also been featured in CNN, CNBC, Business Insider, Forbes Advisor, and Fodor's Travel. In this episode, Ariana and I talk about her favorite points earning strategies and underrated loyalty programs, including Hilton Honors. We also touch on the importance of finding value in mid to lower tier hotels and the flexibility of using points for breakfast versus cash and more. Ariana and I discuss the benefits of being a Hilton Diamond member, including the ability to earn points easily and receive upgrades. If this sounds interesting to you, consider the Hilton Surpass American Express card. Remember, if you decide to apply for the Hilton Surpass American Express card or any other card, never apply directly through Google. Always use a friend or creator's referral link. And if you're interested in supporting this show when you apply for your next card, check out geobreezetravel.com slash cards. And if you're not sure what card is right for you, I offer free credit card consultations at geobreezetravel.com slash consultations. And we have links to the Hilton Surpass American Express card and the free consultation form for you in the show notes as well. And now on with the show. Welcome to the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast, a show for anyone wanting to level up their travel hacking lifestyle. I'm your host, Julia Menez. I'm a travel hacker, coach, speaker, Filipina-American ENTJ who loves solid travel gear and using shortcuts on spreadsheets. On this show, I'm on a mission to bring you travel hackers from all walks of life to help you level up your travel hacking game. We dive into credit cards, miles, points, strategy, mindset, and the secrets behind how to travel the world for next to no cost. So let's get hacking. Hey, Ariane, welcome to the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you. It has been a long time since I've been hoping to get you on the show. So I'm so excited that we are finally here and that we are going to talk about a very underrated program today. But before we jump into all of that, tell us a little bit about you and your background and how did you even get into the game of points and miles? Uh, yeah, so I got into points and miles uh, around 2011. I've been at this for almost 12 years now. I was two years out of college working a job I absolutely hated and like trying to pay off student loans and just being miserable at the time. And one day my dad called me at work and just said, you know, you need a vacation. We're going to go back to the homeland, Afghanistan. We're going to take two weeks and also travel around Europe. And that trip ended up being so life-changing for me because I hadn't been out of the country for a long time and it just totally you know, it revived me. So I realized I wanted to keep traveling and keep having these experiences. But as you know, travel's not always cheap. So I started Googling like how to get free or like cheap travel. And I came across this whole community of people who are, you know, maximizing credit cards and doing crazy gift card turns and things like that to try to earn points. And I completely, you know, fell into that world and obsessively consumed every blog I could to try to learn everything that I could about it. But yeah, and it, it's so strange because shortly after that, I started collecting all the information in like a Word document and sharing it with people. And eventually I realized like I should be starting a blog, which I think everyone in the space at one point thinks I should be starting a blog. Um, but yeah, I started uh, my blog Point Chaser only like a little under a year later. 
And uh, then I got hired to, to work on my favorite blog at the time, which was Frugal Travel Guy. And it just kind of like turned into a career for me ever since. Um, I've been, you know, kind of elevating the way that I hack travel over the last decade. And I feel like in some way, the whole space has gotten better. And in some cases, it's gotten worse. But I think moving into it has been the most life-changing, the best decision I ever made because it impacted pretty much every area of my life. There was so much in that introduction that I want to follow up with. Traveling to Afghanistan, using points <laughs> and miles. Is it possible? How do people do that? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, it was hard a decade ago when I did it in 2012 for, you know, for the second trip back home. But I think at the time, I may have used Flying Blue Miles to fly to, like, Amsterdam and then Dubai. And then you have to book a round trip ticket on a, an Afghan airline, you know, to get from Dubai to Kabul. But I actually went back in October and I used my Advantage miles to fly Q Suites. And then I flew again, my namesake air, airline, Ariana, round trip. So you can definitely do it on points. It's totally feasible. What is Ariana Airlines? I've never heard of this. So it's the national airline of Afghanistan. It's operated by the Afghan government. And it's an interesting experience. Like when I traveled this time, it, it was jarring to me because the seatbelts didn't work and the, you know, the, the people were getting up in the middle of the flight and just like getting their luggage. And one guy was talking on the phone the whole time as we were ascending. So it's an interesting experience flying on it. But, you know, it was my only option because you can't really, you can't actually book tickets with Comair, which is the other carrier because of sanctions or whatever. So I had to fly Ariana and it was interesting. I'm glad I did it though. Do they have any transfer partners or any airline alliances or anything like that? They have a loyalty program, but no transfer partners as of yet. I think that's probably going to be a long time coming. So speaking of transfer partners and different hacks and everything, you have been at this game for a long time. What are some of your favorite different hacks or ways to get points from days long ago where you were like, oh, that was such a sweet spot and doesn't exist anymore. So I used to really make a killing at turning gift cards. Uh, I would buy like Visa gift cards and cash them out. I remember at one point I made like almost 350,000 miles in one month plus a cash profit. So unfortunately that's not out there anymore, but I, I kind of like just milked that for all it was worth. Nowadays, I'm into buying clubs to try to earn miles, uh, which are really fun because you just get to do it from your computer. But is, are you looking for more like points hacks, like redeeming or? or oh, no, for like earning points. For the 350 some thousand a month, was that the Target red card or was that Amex Bluebird or was that something else? Oh, God, I don't remember exactly. I mean, I know that blog post is still up. I, th I think it was probably a combination of like Visa gift cards, the Target red and then maybe some like merchant gift card churning. But yeah, those are those are the good old days. Yeah, those are much harder to find these days, unfortunately. And since you've been in the game for more than a decade, you mentioned that the industry has gotten better in a lot of ways and worse in a lot of ways. Can you kind of elaborate on how has it gotten better and how has it gotten worse? Yeah, I mean, I think the constant like devaluation that we're seeing now is definitely, I think, a symptom of just overexposure. You know, like everyone has a points blog now, even the big publications like Forbes and USA Today. So in that way, sweet spots are going away. But then there is also a lot of undiscovered territory or a lot of underutilized programs, especially the foreign loyalty programs. So I, I still think there's value where you're if you're willing to look outside of what the major mainstream points blogs are telling you. 
which is actually a good thing because we want to preserve those uh, as much as possible. What do you think are some of the programs that are super underrated and you're like, well, at least CNN hasn't like broken a story about this one yet? Well, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to go that way, but I do think that there's a lot of value in uh, Turkish miles, for example. I know that it's, it's sort of made the rounds a little bit, the 15,000 mile round trip ticket that you can book domestically on United. And then also like Hilton Honors is so underrated. A lot of people like to crap on it. It's a really popular punching bag, but it's probably my favorite loyalty program. And I feel like it's easier to earn points with them. You get status pretty much out of the gate with a credit card. And I've never gotten more upgrades with any other loyalty program. I've been a lowly gold at, at, at minimum, and I've gotten, you know, sweet upgrades. Whereas with some other programs I'm not going to name, I've been top tier and I, I've gotten rooms facing a brick wall before. So I just feel like Hilton is generous and, you know, the, don't let the high redemption rate scare you off, I think, because earning those points is actually easier than with a lot of other loyalty programs. With earning Hilton Diamond, since it is really easy to get top tier status, since all you need is the Hilton Aspire card, yeah. have you not found that it devalues it at all? Where I just think of in The Incredibles where they're like, well, if everybody's super, then nobody is. Do you think that by making it so easy to get top tier status that waters down the Hilton program at all? Or no, there's still a ton of value, even though it is really easy to get top tier. So not in my experience. And I remember years ago, I talked to a hotel executive at a different company who also has a program where you can earn a top tier status with a credit card. And I said, doesn't that devalue being an, a loyal member? Doesn't that sort of water down the benefits that you get if a lot of people have this credit card? And he said, honestly, the credit cards are only a small portion of our business or of our whole like elite portfolio. So no, it actually doesn't make a difference at all. And we feel like elite members still get value out of being elite. So I think it probably applies to Hilton too. I don't hear too many people complaining about not getting enough benefits as a Hilton Diamond member, as I do people for, who are elite with airlines and get on a plane and don't get the fun seat up front or whatever benefits they expected. So I think it's definitely a different ballgame for uh, hotels. I think so too. Also because with hotels, you have hundreds of rooms in most hotels, unless it's something like a super small boutique hotel, like Alila Ventana or Park Hyatt Kyoto or something like that. Most <laughs> of the time you can get some kind of upgrade. Maybe it's not to the huge suite, but they can throw in food and beverage credits, or they have a lot of other things at their disposal if you have top tier status or anywhere close to it. Whereas on an airline, if it's an American Airlines flight between Las Vegas and Washington, D.C. or something, they can only upgrade you so much. And there are what, 16, 18 seats that they can pick from. And once those are claimed, there is there's not like a secret section that they can stick you in. Whereas in the hotel, most of the time there is something that they are able to do. So I agree. There's usually a little bit more flexibility with you can get something that makes it feel a little bit more special with hotel programs versus airline. I agree. And I think as a Hilton Diamond member, especially, you get that point bonus, which really adds up when you stack that against their bonus point promotions. There are already generous point earning rates. And then you stack that with the bonus from the credit card. 
like it really like I've I, I always log into my Hilton uh, account after a stay and I'm just like astounded at the number of points I earn that you know from all these different avenues so I think it's highly underrated yes 95,000 120,000 or even 150 now 150,000 points for a, a room sounds crazy at a top tier hotel but just think about how easy it actually is to earn those points with all the bonuses so I think it's worth it and I think people should look at Hilton more often. When you are looking at those huge numbers where it's going to take 100,000 points to get a free night at some of those more aspirational properties versus how much effort it's going to take to earn 100,000 Hilton points, how do we kind of rectify that? Because a Hilton point, let's say it's half a cent per point, maybe a little bit under that. And there's all of this like hot takes on the internet about how much should you value cents per point versus like effort that it takes to get per point. How do you kind of determine for yourself, this is a good redemption. This is not a good redemption. I should go for this. I should not sign up for this promo. How do you kind of weigh that for yourself? Yeah. So that's an interesting take because I used to, I've never been one to subscribe to like a point valuation system. When people ask me how much is a point worth or what should I aim for? It's kind of a hard question for me to answer because the way I've made that determination in the past was how much am I spending to earn these points and I used to get points really cheaply from like gift card churning and so my standard wasn't super high just because I could replenish that balance so quickly but I think nowadays I try to look at like I don't know if a hotel room is 80,000 points per night and it's like four hundred dollars I, I try to think about, okay, well, if I pay for that stay with like my venture card, you know, I could redeem 40,000 points and I only need to spend $20,000 to earn those points versus if I were to try to earn Chase Ultimate Rewards, for example, 80,000 of them, it would take a lot more spending to get there. So I do it a little differently than everyone else. But I think in general, if you can try to set a standard for yourself, I feel like for me, two cents a mile or a point. It's, it's pr it maybe a little high if you look at some of the point valuations out there, but that's the, the sort of standard that I stick to is, am I getting at least two cents per mile? Because otherwise I might as well just like pay for it, redeem venture miles and be better off in a lot of ways. So I think there are a lot of different ways that you can make that determination. And you're talking about two cents per point with flexible currencies, right? Like with Chase, Amex, City, Capital One. Or do you have a magic way to get two cents per point with Hilton? Because that would be, I think, miraculous. And I need you to know, know what I have. I have gotten more than two cents per point at Hilton before. I stayed at the Waldorf Maldives a couple of years ago. And it was like, at the time, I think it was 120,000 points per night. And the room was like over $3,000. So I definitely got more than two cents per point. But with Hilton points, I think it's, yeah, it's points that are hotel points, especially Hilton ISG are worth a little more or a little less than transferable currencies. But if I'm going to transfer points that I definitely want to get at least two cents per point just because those, those are so valuable. It's a complicated question to answer, I think. And you just need to sort of think, how much are these points about, you know, how much do I value these points? And how easy is it for me to replenish them? I just would advise against following the herd mentality of like, you need to stay at like an ultra luxury hotel to get your money's worth for your points. Because I've stayed at 5,000 point Hilton hotels where I got like almost three cents uh, per point. So I feel like don't always look at the high end luxury redemption, which most of us wouldn't even pay cash for anyway, 
to determine how to get the most value for your points. What are some of your favorite lower end Hilton hotels? Because when you're looking at mid to low level, that is where a lot of people are like, I mean, it's only getting me like 0.3 cents per point or something if they do subscribe to the cents per point valuation. So what are some recommendations for where you can look for these pretty good Hilton redemptions on the lower to mid tier? I feel like you can definitely get more value for your Hilton points if you look abroad. My One of my favorite redemptions was at the uh, Hilton Konya. I think it's a Hilton Garden Inn. That property was so surprising to me because I was looking for a hotel in the area. I thought about booking a boutique, but the Hilton was only 5000 I think it was like 140 bucks a night at the time. So a little over two cents, almost three cents per point I got out of that redemption. And it was like the loveliest hotel. We all got free breakfast. They upgraded me to a suite and the location was perfect. So I feel like just look abroad. You might be able to find some real gems or properties that are nicer than what you'll find in the U.S. For, in that category and ones that maybe cost a little more on cash and make it worthwhile to redeem points. Sorry, where was this one? This was in Turkey, Konya, Turkey. My favorite Hilton I ever stayed at, I think it was one of our first points redemptions too, was the Doubletree in Kuala Lumpur, where the hotel wasn't that expensive, but the breakfast was crazy expensive. And this was in the days where you could get free breakfast, even with just gold status, which I had through Amex Platinum or something. And it was going to be like $45 per person per day. So my husband was like, you're absolutely sure, right? That we're not going to end up spending $90 per day for breakfast in Malaysia, where we can step out of the hotel, we can get these little buns for like $1.25 down the street. So just making sure. And the breakfast was included. So that was one of my favorite Hilton redemptions that we've ever done. Speaking of, with the breakfast thing with Hilton, how they don't have it in the US anymore. And I think they took it away abroad as well, right? If you have status, they don't give you breakfast anymore. Does that weigh into your calculations at all for the Hilton program? Here's the thing with the breakfast credit. So because of the pandemic, because a lot of hotels were cutting out breakfast and closing lounges, they decided to instead issue uh, a daily credit for each guest. And I think the minimum is usually around like $15. It can go higher depending on the property. But I feel like at the time it was a good decision. And even now there there is value in that because I don't always want to eat at the breakfast buffet. In certain cities, I like going out and like eating something light or going to like a restaurant that's known for the breakfast and trying that. So I feel like, you know, spending that 15 bucks on like snacks at the little pantry shop or room service if I needed is actually way more flexible and helpful. Um, but I do think that the breakfast benefit, especially abroad, can go a long way. And if you're a diamond member and you get lounge access internationally, that's huge. You know, one of the most impressive buffets ever tried was at the was at the Conrad in Mecca. So my family and I did our religious trip. It's called Umrah. We completed that a few years ago and we stayed at the Conrad. They gave everybody in my group free breakfast. There were, what, eight of us and we had like three rooms. So they gave everybody free breakfast. They gave us room upgrades. Two of our rooms got upgraded to suites. And we had access to the lounge, which is basically a restaurant. You could just like have full-blown meals there. And considering that in that area... It is all hotels and you are just eating hotel food. It's nice to have that included because it's not like you're going to go out there and eat something that's or go to a restaurant that's, you know, known for their food or whatever. So I feel like in certain situations that free breakfast and that lounge benefit can really 
make your experience that much better, especially if you're traveling with a big group and they extend it to everybody in your group, which Hilton does for me usually. Yeah, some hotels are a little bit stingier than others when it comes to, oh, well, technically it's only breakfast for two or technically only breakfast for four. But I have found that in international hotels, they're a little bit more lenient on it versus in the United States where they're like, mm, terms and conditions say two, they will extend it to a party of eight or something abroad. And I think that's a good point about breakfast too, where if you're going to not be going out for breakfast anyway, that's when it makes sense to find a hotel that will provide breakfast for you. Like having free breakfast in the Maldives is huge. Having free breakfast in Paris, even though if you are staying at the Paracaya at Paris Vendôme, they're like, oh my God, you're saving like $100 a day on breakfast because it's included. Yeah, but you could go down the street and pay five euro for a world-class baguette. So there's kind of that opportunity cost where in the Maldives, you're on a private island. You're not going to be able to uh, go stuck. somewhere else. Actually, when, when I stayed at the Waldorf story on the Maldives, I got there, I think like it was an early morning flight. It was like nine o'clock when I arrived and my room wasn't ready. So they're like, go ahead and help yourself to the breakfast buffet. So I got to go and have an extra day of breakfast that would have cost me, I don't know. I don't remember. I think it was like at least 60 bucks a person or 70 bucks a person at that hotel. So I feel like it, it it provides convenience, especially if you're with a big group, which I tend to travel a lot with my family and not having to like get everybody into a car or figure out wh where are we going to eat and everybody let's go at this time and find somewhere to where everyone's going to enjoy the food. That, that's a huge convenience factor for me. And I think it definitely makes it worthwhile. There are a lot of people who look down at like the breakfast benefit and be like, oh, well, you know, it's just eggs and toast. Like, yeah, but it's about the convenience of not having to think about where you're going to eat that non-consequential meal of eggs and toast. You, like you, you just go downstairs, no having to get everybody in a car and you just like, don't think about it. So I really value it. I think, even though like, yeah, I wouldn't pay maybe 50 bucks or whatever in Malaysia for, for breakfast, but having that convenience definitely helps. If you're looking to earn more points and miles, there are usually two main ways to get there. The first one is with credit card signup bonuses, where you can easily earn tens of thousands of points by putting your expenses on a new credit card. If you're in the market for a new credit card, we offer free credit card consultations and provide you with personalized recommendations based on your particular travel goals, budget, and lifestyle at geobreezetravel.com slash consultations. But there are also a ton of ways to earn points outside of opening more cards. And we have some of my favorite methods like stacking, finding hidden bonus offers, and finding reimbursable spending strategies outlined in my free webinar called You Do Not Need 20 Cards. Check out the free webinar on geobreezetravel.com slash webinar. And we have links to both the free consultation form and the free webinar for you in the show notes. And now back to the show. Yeah, sometimes it's eggs and toast and not having to get four children into a car, into a restaurant somewhere else. So all of that kind of weighs into it as well. And I think you did make a good point earlier too about cents per point isn't the end all be all. Sometimes it's like cents per point per effort where let's just say there was some currency of points where you can get 10 cents per point or something almost easily, but it's so hard to get that currency. That does kind of just weigh into like, oh, well, you're only getting a fraction of a penny per point, but they're basically giving these points out for free. I feel that way about the My Vegas app points where you just set it on auto spin. And for anybody who hasn't heard of this game, it's you can download it in the, the Play Store and then the Apple Store. 
And then you just set it on auto spin and you don't have to give it any money. And they give you these gold tokens, hoping you get addicted to gambling. But as long as you don't actually put any money in, you're fine. And then you get these gold tokens, and you get free food and rooms and buy one, get one free drinks and all this stuff in Las Vegas. And then people are like, oh, well, like, what's the time per point? I'm like, I don't know. It's divide by zero. Like, they're just free points for running my phone battery down. So that's yeah, something to kind of keep in mind. I didn't have to spend anything to earn them. I barely had to spend any time. I usually just turn that game on when I find myself too distracted by my phone. And I'm like, I need to focus on like writing emails or turning out videos. And then I use it to kind of lock my phone. So cents per point per effort, whether you want to measure your effort in dollars you had to spend or time that you had to spend to earn those points is a, I would say more accurate, but much more difficult to measure metric for how to play this whole game. And I feel like a lot of people will get caught up in that, especially during the days when I was manufactured spending, people would say, okay, you're in these points, but how much time did you spend? And on one hand, yes, I was actually very efficient with the way I did it. It didn't cost me a lot of time, but you also can't, I feel like you can't account for every minute of your time that you spend on these things because how much time are you spending every day, like playing a game on your phone or like staring off into space or like binging or whatever it is that you're doing to kind of distract yourself from work or from billable hours. So I feel like even if you do put a little bit of effort in and it it's fun for you, then you don't necessarily have to think about the effort too much. Yeah. As long as it's fun. I do find a lot of people to avoid spending any money, they're going to be like, why spend $20 learning something if I can instead spend 20 hours watching YouTube videos that I don't want to watch? That's when I'd be like, mm, if it's not even fun for you, just outsource it. The hobby is supposed to be fun. If it is fun for you to like do all the research yourself, go for it. If it's just causing you stress because you haven't been able to find the award flight that you want and summer vacation is coming for your family and you're just like, oh, you know, we don't have summer vacation plan. That is when it can make sense to invest in a little bit more help. But if it's just purely a hobby for you and just like research and learning on your own, or you're going to be watching YouTube anyway, you might as well watch YouTube about how to redeem points. Those are two completely different situations for like how much your time is worth and when to use up your time for that. Yeah, I think that if you're doing this as part of your leisure time and it's enriching your life in some way, ultimately, like don't worry about valuing your time as much as you would if you were trying to get work done. I also find a lot of people just watch a lot of like hustle culture Instagram and they're like, but how much is your time worth? And I'm like, well, I mean, your salary, what else were you going to do from 8 to 9 p.m.? Go chase down some sales leads. If you are on a commission thing or you do work hourly and the opportunity cost is you could go work some leads and make another thousand dollars and by all means do that. But yeah. if you're like, well, my salary is my salary. And so it's just how much energy do I have? Do you want to spend your energy on that? It's, it's so funny you say that because that first job I had where I was like miserable, I had a lot of downtime where I wasn't doing anything. And so I would go online and I'd use the, I think it was Hawaiian Airlines at the time at a shopping portal where they also had a search bar. And then if you did searches, you got points and you could earn like, I think it was like up to 5,000 points a day or something crazy like that. So I would just do that. And was it productive? No, it wasn't. Was it fun? Not super, but like I wasn't giving anything up to do that. It was just there getting paid by the hour and uh, trying to kill time. So in that, when you mentioned like productivity on all that, I was like, I wasn't doing anything and I was working on someone else's time, getting salaried getting a salary and just, you know, earning points at the same time. 
I love that. Was it productive? No. Was it profitable? No. Was it fun? <laughs> Not really. It's like 5,000 points a day and you would get like three, one point or one mile for every three searches or something. And I was like, I will do this. That's fine. And just let me pass the time here on this hole. <laughs> so it works What out. are you searching for? Literally just typing words into the search bar. I used to do this with Swagbox. It's not something I would recommend because you do get like one cent per search or something like that. But I would just like, I think there was like a dictionary.com of like Spanish words or something. And I was just trying like different, different words and just like copy pasting in words. Was it a good use of time? No. Did I even have fun doing it? No. Did I earn about 15 cents? Yeah, I guess. Would I recommend it? Not unless you're writing a story or an article and trying to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's a lot of interesting ways to earn points out there and you just got to figure out like which one, I don't know, which one gives me joy or which one is worth pursuing. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about how Hilton interacts with all of the other points programs out there. Because with Hyatt, everyone's like, oh, you can transfer and chase or build points. With Marriott, people are like, yeah, just don't transfer in any points there. It's not a good use to transfer points. Is it ever a good idea to transfer like Amex points to Hilton with the two for one promos that they sometimes run? So I think that depends on what you're going to use your points for. I generally, and I think most people follow this advice, I don't transfer points unless I have an immediate use for them because Point programs do value sometimes overnight without warning. You don't want to end up transferring a bunch of points and then suddenly they're worth less. So I think that if you can get a lot of value out of a transfer, it might make sense. Like who knows if you want to transfer 5,000 points for a stay that costs like the one I booked, like 150 bucks almost, that might be worthwhile, especially if there's a bonus. But I think it really comes down to what's the opportunity cost you're giving up. I try to think about my redemption as a whole when I'm planning a trip. So I think, okay, I need this many points for the ticket. I need this for the hotel. And then I figure out, okay, well, is it worth transferring these Amex points to this hotel program and then giving up the opportunity to redeem them for miles? Um, the answer a lot of times with hotel points is no, unless it's Hyatt. And so I think that it's important to just evaluate what am I giving up when I'm transferring my, uh, these points? Is it worth it? And then again, just making sure that you actually are going to redeem them right away. Because it's so tempting when there's a bonus point promotion to be like, oh my God, I'm getting 30% more points. Let me just do this. I actually had this happen with Virgin Atlantic. I think they were running a 30% bonus transfer a few months back. Transferred some points over, I think, from Amex. And like they devalued their A&A chart. So that kind of sucked. I mean, I still have a, a good use for the points because I'm probably going to use them to go to the UK and it's only... 15,000 miles one way. But you really have to consider that a lot of times when you see a transfer bonus like that, there might be a de devaluation not shortly after, especially if you see the airline like also selling miles. They're putting a lot of miles out there into the market, saturating it. That's going to lead to a devaluation. So really think about those factors, I think, before you pull the trigger on any point transfer, whether it is to Hilton or to a more valuable program. Yeah, that's just kind of how economics works. If you're printing money, that money is not going to be worth nearly as much in a couple of weeks, especially if the hotel program has eminent domain to just be like, our currency is not worth as much anymore. 
and completely agreed don't transfer points speculatively from a flexible program into a non-flexible program because then they're stuck. And unless you have a way to use them right away, they're just going to be there. People message me with all sorts of horror stories of, hey, um, I saw there was a Virgin Atlantic promo. I moved over 300,000 miles, but there's not actually any ANA first class. What do I do? And I'm like, yeah, ANA first class is hard to find on Virgin Atlantic. So don't move your points over until you know that you can book it. Unless, again, you're just printing points and it doesn't take a lot of effort for you. Yeah, no, you really have to do your award search first, figure out what you're using points for. Put tickets on hold if you can, if the program lets you. And then once you're like pretty much locked in and you know you're going to pull the trigger on that award booking, then transfer the points. And that goes for hotels or airlines. I feel like hotel programs have been a little gentler with their devaluations or at least like announcing them ahead of time. But they don't have to. They can just do it at any moment and then your points are worth less. Do you only have one Hilton Aspire card for your diamond? And is there ever a strategy where it makes sense to have multiples of these cards? Because you are allowed to have more than one Hilton Aspire. It's just that you have to pay multiple annual fees and then you get multiple free nights. Do you just have one? And what do you think of that strategy? Yeah, so right now I only have one Hilton Aspire card. I've had it for a few years. The annual fee is pretty steep, right? It's $450. And I think the sign-up bonus was like 150 and it still might be. I get that card solely for the diamond benefit. So I don't really see a value beyond that, even though there is a free night, you know, annual free night and, you know, a few other perks. But I feel like you should really think about that. Like, am I going to get value out of a second card? Is it worth paying $450? If you're going to use your free night award in the Maldives or someplace where a hotel is more than $450 a night, go for it. It, it makes total sense. I just don't see that. I actually might add a Hilton Surpass to my wallet just because I, I need more Hilton points right now. And I feel like that's a good option. And after like 15000 spent, I get a second free night versus having to spend $60,000 on the Aspire. So I, I think it's worth exploring like the lower tiered cards to see if you're better off adding a second one instead of the same one that you already have. Yeah, the strategy would definitely differ based off of each person's situation because some people might be like, well, I could just spend an extra $450 instead of an extra $15,000 and then get the extra free night if you wanted it that way. I've only, I have downgraded my Hilton Surpass card. I used to have it and there's a story on some podcast episode where we talked about drilling holes into my eyes. I had corrective eye surgery and that got me a free night at Hilton because that was more than $10,000. So lots of different ways to earn points and miles. And a lot of people with the Hilton Aspire to the Surpass to the Hilton Honors free version, they will upgrade and downgrade their cards just to get the airline incidental credit and the other credits that reset on a calendar year rather than on a policy year. Is that a strategy that you subscribe to? Or are you just like, I'll just keep it open and then play it easy mode? Yeah. So I've actually... I think about that carefully every time my annual fee is up. Is this worth it? Should I just downgrade? Ultimately, with that card, I just keep it because I do want to keep my diamond status. I don't want to spend 40 grand on the surpass card to upgrade because that benefit is so useful to me. And then ultimately, you know what? I get a ton of like credits every year from the Amex offers. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. I'm sure your readers are. But Amex offers consist of discounts at a lot of popular retailers I think recently I got one for 10% off my insurance bill. So I went ahead and put my, my car insurance under that card. 
And I'm always finding really helpful statement credits, whether it's at like gas stations or again, the insurance bill, cell phone bill. There's a lot of really good retail statement credits. I can log in right now and check, but I think last year alone across all my Amex cards, I had over $500 in savings. So I take that into consideration too. And I feel like maybe it's lazy and I could do better, but I look at those credits. I look at the airline fee credit, the resort credit, the diamond benefit, and I'm like, I'll just keep this. Like, it's not worth downgrading and, and upgrading. I just keep it as is. Yeah, that makes sense. For anybody who's like, what are you even talking about? If you open the Hilton Aspire card, do it in fourth quarter. Like, let's say you open it in December. You can use up all the credits that reset on an annual basis in December. You're going to pay one twelfth of the annual fee. It's going to reset in January. These annual fees are a little bit offset, but stay with me because annual fees are charged on a calendar year. Your calendar benefits reset in January. So like that airline incidental credit, you'd have it again starting in January. And then if you're going to close it down, close it in first quarter right after you use the annual fee. So then right after you use those calendar credits. So for example, you would have open your card in November, you're going to have it open for another 12 months, use up your calendar, your benefits, pay the full annual fee, have the card open for another two months, use the calendar benefits a third time in a 14 or 15 month time frame, And then you're going to downgrade the card and get prorated for your annual fee. And so you can kind of do the upgrade downgrade game there and take advantage of those calendar reset benefits that way. Keep in mind that some of the benefits do reset on a policy year rather than a calendar year. So your annual free night, you can't just go back to back to back. That one's going to reset every every policy year rather than every calendar year, whereas the airline incidental credits do reset on a calendar year. I'm sure that was super confusing. I'm going to put a chart up if you're watching this on the YouTube. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of hacks like that, depending on how far you want to take this. You can really save a lot of money and get more out of your card. I feel like I've gotten to the point where I'm just more lazy about these things. And I don't really want to like close credit cards and downgrade anymore and just like skate by. I think that happens as people get into the game where people are like really cautious of getting in. And then suddenly you learn a couple of things and you're like, we're going to manufacture, spend everything. And then suddenly you're like, yeah, maybe we're not going to manufacture, spend everything. And then you just kind of find a program or programs that work for you and you kind of figure out your pattern and coast. And that is completely normal. And sometimes that coast might look like, I'm just gonna pay the annual fee for Hilton Aspire to get top tier status with Hilton rather than buying 30 fake nights or whatever with Hyatt to do a virtual mattress run so that you can get Hyatt Globalist. That makes sense in some worlds because you pay $450, you have top tier status, whereas To get Hyatt Globalist, if you don't actually travel that much, you're doing a lot of strange shenanigans where sometimes it's probably more economical to just buy breakfast at that point. Yeah. I mean, I had to contend with that recently because I got that built upgrade to Explorist after losing my uh, Globalist status. And, you know, Explorist, I'm not really getting any benefits out of that as someone who stated a few properties this year. But I really would love that globalist breakfast and possible upgrades and all that stuff. So I'm weighing right now whether it's worth it for me to do a mattress run, which like on one hand, I'm like, no, it's not worth it. Because <laughs> even if I find a hotel that's 50 bucks a night somewhere because it's off peak season, 
like how much am I saving on breakfast? You got to weigh these things. They're, natural bones are so fun though. I just like planning them and, and figuring out like the, how many points am I earning and is this really worth it? The answer probably is no, we'll figure yeah. that out. The fun of calling up all your friends in Las Vegas being like, hey, can you like check on my room and the Excalibur every three days? I am not that friend in Las Vegas, you guys. Do not call me to check on your room at the Excalibur where you're like, I pay $25 a night and like I, I need my high globalist. Just don't do it because if you need to buy that many nights, you're probably not using your breakfast credits and all of your other credits enough. I had a free calculator in the free course. I might update it so that it's for the 60 Hyatt nights to see, is it worth it to do some extra mattress runs? Cause I had it up there just for the built. Is it worth doing a 20 night mattress run just to get Hyatt globalist? And the answer is it depends on how much you would use your benefits. But yeah, just something to keep in mind where even though a lot of people on the internet are always just like, oh my God, globalist benefits are the best. And I say that because I travel a lot and globalist benefits are great. But if you're not traveling that much, it's a lot of work for not a lot of juice out of that squeeze. Yeah. And you know what? Actually, five or six years ago, there was there was this Hyatt, like, was it a status match or a challenge? I can't remember. But I think I had to complete 12 nights. And I managed to do it for $1,200, I think. And I did earn some points, ended up with Globalist. And then I took a trip with my family to Singapore, Hong Kong, Bali, but we only stayed at Hyatt hotels in um, Singapore and Hong Kong. And the benefits that we got out of that, though, did I feel like we got our money's worth. Like it really was worth the $1,200 I spent on mattress runs because like we saved so much on breakfast, even if we had eaten locally, we had lounge access that made things really nice, like in the evening when no one wanted to leave the hotel to just be able to like eat there for free. And we got the most insane suite upgrades at the Hyatt, what was it, the Grand Hyatt Hong Kong and the Grand Hyatt Singapore. It was way worth way more than the $1,200 I spent. So I feel like it can make sense. So I'm in that place now where I'm like, should I mattress run 16 nights for a globalist? Even though I don't, I feel like I've been disappointed as a Hyatt globalist so often, but I also really want it. So I don't know. Gotta, gotta give that some more thought. See if you can get some stories out of it. Cause there, it, it is a weird twist too when you're like, well, this is my career on how to write about travel and points and everything. So that does add a little bit of complexity to the math that we all try to, to do. But also speaking as an actuary, not everything has to be distilled into a math formula. Everybody's always just like, is this a good redemption? Like, how do I figure this out mathematically? I'm like, I can give you the formula, but at the end of the day, this isn't a math problem. This is like a, do you really, really want to spend the effort to get this much out of it kind of question? Yeah, I think those valuations are so personal to everybody and you really have to think about what works best for you. Yeah. So with everything that you have learned about Hilton and hotels and really points and miles in general in the decade plus that you have been in the game, what would you say is your number one piece of advice for listeners today that we can fit onto an Instagram quote card? My best piece of advice is definitely to avoid the herd mentality. A lot of people in the points and miles world will travel to the same places, collect the same loyalty points, be loyal to the same hotel chain just because. But I would really advise people to deviate from the herd and look into lesser known loyalty programs because that's where you'll find some of the best sweet spots. And a lot of those sweet spots are not as uh, widely explored as the more commonly known ones. And as a result, they hopefully won't be devalued anytime soon. 
I absolutely love that. And I think it just so perfectly embodies everything that we try to say on this podcast, which is here are all the stories that you don't always find on page one because everybody likes Park Hyatt Kyoto. Everybody likes Park Hyatt New York and Paris, Vendome, Alila, Ventana. Everybody wants to fly Emirates first class and a premiere, which is really hard to do on points, but everybody likes to go for the same exact super shiny redemptions. And if you can deviate a little bit from that, I do think it makes it a little bit more fun and a little bit more fulfilling to not just follow the herd, like you said, and do the exact same cookie cutter things that you've seen so many people do that a lot of people feel that like, oh, are you even really a points and miles person if you haven't insert whatever? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's just silly. And this game is meant to be fun and to help you travel the way that you want to rather than to check off some box that like the cool kids lunch table is like, oh, you gotta, you gotta check off these boxes to sit at the cool kids table. That table does not exist. And if it does, I've definitely been kicked out of it by now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been years since I've flown first class. I don't care to anymore because I feel like there's not much of a difference, especially in the newer business class seats. And anytime I've deviated away from what everybody said in terms of like the hotel to stay at or the airline that you have to fly, I feel like I've had a better time and I've had a, a unique experience. And when I share that with other people, they're like, oh, well, this is nice because it's not what everybody else is writing about or raving about. So I think it's important to do that. I love that so much. I don't even know if I can express how much I love that. And speaking of fantastic points advice, can you give a shout out to somebody else on the internet who you would recommend listeners also follow for even more points and miles tips, especially tips off the beaten path? Yeah, there are a lot of really great people, but my favorites right now are my friends Ben and John at No Moss Coach. They're incredibly knowledgeable about points and miles. Uh, every time I meet up with them, I learn something new and useful. And they're actually bamping up their social media presence with this uh, series of content on like different things you should be doing to earn points that are really interesting. And so I highly recommend you follow them if you're looking for interesting hacks and just like two really charismatic, fun guys who know what they're talking about. I met them recently at the Freddie Awards in Washington, D.C., and they are so nice and also so hilarious and entertaining. I definitely need to get them on the show. Yeah, no, definitely get them on. They're very different, you know, like night and day, but very lovely guys and super smart. At CardCon, John had this little like round table on points. I think, you know, like it was like five or six people and everyone was just like mesmerized by him. And he was giving all these incredible hacks that people who have been at this, like me, for over a decade didn't know about. So he's definitely, they're both, I think, ones to follow. And they all, they share that account, which is No Moss Coach. Fantastic. And where can we find you on the internet? So you can find me mostly on Instagram at Point Chaser. And then I also relaunched my blog recently. Pointchaser.com is up and running. I'm going to be writing a lot more content about travel hacking, manufactured spending, and all that fun stuff. Yeah, Instagram and, and pointchaser.com. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure you are going to get a lot of follows after this episode. Thank you again so much, Ariana, for coming onto the show and sharing about your experiences with Points and Miles and how Hilton is an underrated program that more people should go check out. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so glad I finally got to do this. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast. 
If any of the cards mentioned in today's episode piqued your interest, please check out the links in the show notes for more information on any of the cards. Also, if you apply for a card using the links on that page, I may receive a commission too, so please and thank you. P.S. I hear the links work better in Internet Explorer or Safari, and sometimes the credit card applications tend to glitch out in Chrome. Additionally, it would mean the world to me if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star review, and share it with a friend. And if you would like to make even more travel hacking friends, please sign up for the Patreon to access our monthly masterclass hangouts. We dive deep into a particular points program each month, and you'll get to ask all of your travel hacking questions and enjoy being around other people who enjoy points and miles just as much as you and I do. If you would like an invite to the next one, head over to geobreezetravel.com slash hangouts to sign up to be on the invite list. Take care and happy travels.